two things that I don't do very well with. One is heights. And I think it's more ledges or edges that get me than just the pure height. So even standing here is a little intrepidacious for me to stand here and look over the side, right? It's an edge. It's not too high, though. I could survive that. The other thing is a little claustrophobic at times. I don't care to be in like really crowded elevators, especially ones that, that might get stuck somewhere. <laughs> On our trip to the Holy Land, we had the chance to go to Jericho. And we were right there at the, the foot of the tell, which is where the civilizations of old Jericho were, were built upon each other. But before we went to, to see Jericho, we were going to go up the side of the mountain in a cable car. And I think there were like eight of us, six or eight of us crammed into this cable car. And I missed the memo that said it was going to stop about halfway up. And so we're going up this mount, which is called uh, the Mount of Temptation, where, where uh, supposedly Jesus was tempted. And so we get halfway up, and so we're, we're sitting there all squinched up, and I'm looking over the edge at the bottom of the cliff, and it's really tight, and it's like 85, no, it's like 95 degrees. There's these little slits in the window, so it's hot, it's cramped, and I'm looking over the side of the mountain, so to speak. So anyway, but we survived, and I got to the top of the mountain. And one of the things that the trip to Israel did for me was it really opened up my imagination and, and creativity in looking at and reading through the stories of Scripture. And so I knew this series was coming up, and as I was at the top of this mountain, which there's a, a monastery that's built into the side of this mountain where some of the caves were that, uh, and, and uh, monastics have, have been in and out of those caves and lived in those caves for, for generations, thousands of years... And as I looked out over the side and saw the tail of Jericho below us, and I looked out over the, the mountainside there, to, to my right was the Dead Sea, and to my left, although you couldn't see in this arid region, you couldn't see the Jordan River from there, you could see the vegetation that would have been around the Jordan River as it, as it made its way from north to south. And then on the other side of the Dead Sea and of the Jordan River was the country of Jordan. And I imagined myself looking out over this valley, over this arid desert region 3,000 years ago, and seeing the children of Israel camped somewhere on the other side, making their preparations to claim and to take over the promised land. You remember that story that uh, Joseph and his brothers ended up in Egypt? running from a famine in Israel. And there they found shelter, they found uh, favor, and they were doing great. But then the Pharaohs forgot Joseph, and the children of Israel forgot God, and they found themselves in, in bondage and in slavery there in Egypt. And after several generations, the people began to cry out. And they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard their cries, and the Lord raised up a leader. A leader who would bring them out of bondage and out of slavery. And his name was Moses. And Moses' brother Aaron were, was a part of that leadership team. And they led the children of Israel out into the wilderness. And through events of rebellion and dissatisfaction and just grumbling, they, they wound up wandering through the wilderness there for a generation. 
And a new generation arose and Moses died and, and Joshua became that leader and it was time to cross into the promised land. And as I, I looked out over that mountainside, I saw Joshua and the children of Israel camped out and preparing for their conquest of Jericho. And imagined how the armies might come. And the children of Israel were led by Joshua. And they, they made their conquest of, of Israel and, and the holy lands. And after that was done, Joshua, the scripture tells us, passed away. And, but before he passed away, the, the, the children of Israel, their 12 tribes, the, the 12 clans that made up the Israelite family, dispersed and went to their inheritance, their, their land. And they remained kin, they remained family, they remained a people, but there was no centralized government. There was no centralized way to, to communicate and to offer leadership amongst each other. And if you'll turn with me to Joshua, excuse me, Judges, chapter 2, we'll see the, uh, the end of that story. And what we're looking at is the transition from Joshua, that, that key dynamic leader of Israel, to the period of the Judges. And in, in Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6, the Scripture says, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. So as they came in together, they came in, they, they had their army together, and they, they made conquest of Israel. And then once that was done, they went their separate ways to claim their inheritance, their land. So each of those families, those clans, those tribes of people, then went their separate ways. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord which the Lord had done for Israel. Then Joshua died. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance. And all the generations that were there gathered to their fathers. So I think what the Scripture is saying is when Joshua died, then the generations gathered around them and they committed to follow after Joshua and his ways and, to, ways and continue to, to follow after the Lord. But then notice the next sentence or the next, next phrase. And then there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Nor did that generation know the work which the Lord had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the bells, and they forsook the Lord, the God of Israel. So you see here in this transition of, in, in Israelite of their leadership is that when they came into the promised land and Joshua died, the different clans went their own ways, and they continued to survive and, and to lead each other within their clans. But after a generation, they forgot the Lord and they began to, to be too acclimated to the, to, to the gods of their land and began to worship them and to follow after them. They forsook the Lord. And because of that, the Lord allowed the neighboring and rival kings to come in and maybe a tribe at a time or maybe all the tribes at the same time, but came in with their armies and began to defeat and enslave the Israelites. 
And after a while of being enslaved, they would cry out again to the Lord, Lord God, where are you? We, we, we cry out to you and God would hear them and the people would repent and they would return to God and God would raise up a judge, would raise up a leader who would then come and, and would help call the tribes together and would bring an army together and they would go out and, and defeat the rival king and his army. And the children of Israel would again live in harmony and, and peace and in favor with God and obey and pursue Him until they forgot. They began to worship other gods. Then they would be enslaved again, conquered again. And then they would cry out again. And as we read Scripture, we see this pattern take place over and over and over again. And this is called the period of the Judges. And the pattern is that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and, and then they forgot and they served other gods. And the Lord would allow them to be conquered and put into slavery and they would cry out to God and God would redeem them and raise up a leader. And this leader would come and judge and deliver them. Judges like Othniel, like Deborah, like Gideon, like Samson. And this was the habit and the pattern that continued for generation after generation. But at some point, the tribes began to say, there's something that's not right here. And, and they began to desire a king. They wanted a king because that's what all the other nations had. That's what all these other groups had that were coming in and causing problems and, and conquering them at times. They all had a king. And so the leaders of the different tribes thought, you know what? If we had a king, we wouldn't have these problems anymore. They thought that having an earthly king would facilitate peace and, and centralized leadership and organization. Now, at the time, as this began to, to be a grassroots movement, so to speak, Samuel was the judge over Israel. And, and the truth is, is that, the, that Samuel's sons, who were coming of age as Samuel was getting older, did not follow in Samuel's ways. They, they weren't good guys. They weren't going to be good judges. And so instead of allowing Samuel to work through that and to trust God to bring a new judge, the, the people decided, the leaders decided, this is the time for the transition. This is the time for us to have the king. And so as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, in verse 6, I believe it is, the Israelites are demanding, they're demanding a king and for Samuel to go out and to appoint a king. Now, if we look at verses 19 and 20, we get a little bit more of a picture of what they really want. In verse 19, the Scripture says, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations. All the other nations have kings. We want to have a king. And you know what, Samuel? That king will judge us. You, you don't have to judge us anymore. The king will judge us. And guess what? The king will lead us into battle. And not only will the king lead us into battle, the king is going to fight for us. Oh, Samuel, we need a king. God, we need a king. 
well, of course you can see how Samuel must have felt rejected. How Samuel must have felt his life was, was in his ministry to them was being rejected and, and they were turning against that. And in verse 7 is a key verse. The Lord comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, the people aren't rejecting you. The people are rejecting me. The people are rejecting me as their king. It's interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 20, the Lord says this. He, he tells the Israelites, the children of Israel, as they're preparing to go into the promised land, He says this, The Lord your God is the one who goes with you. I am the one who will fight for you against your enemies. I am the one who will save you. The Lord is saying uh, in Deuteronomy, he, he's, he's telling the, the Israelites, He said, I'm your king, and I'm going to fight for you, and I'm going to go before you, and I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to save you. And here we are generations later, and the children of Israel are going, well, wait a minute, you know, we don't really need God as our king anymore. We need an earthly king. That's, that's going to solve all of our problems. And in that narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Lord relents. And the Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, go and appoint a king for Israel because they have rejected me and not you. You know, I think there's a lesson there. I think the truth is, is that sometimes the Lord answers our prayers affirmatively when he really would care not to how many times do we ask God to to provide us another king beside himself to provide to provide us riches that have nothing to do with him to provide us opportunity and direction and paths that are not his directions and paths yet the Lord relents and the Lord gives us over to that which we think we need and we want. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, which we're going to talk a little bit more about next week, I think, is the story of Samuel going and finding Saul and anointing Saul as king. And the way the story is told, if you would have put all of the men of Israel in a line and Samuel would have walked down and all the leaders of the tribes of Israel would have walked down the line and seen every man in Israel, their choice would have been evident. They would have all chosen Saul. Why? Listen to the descriptions of Saul in 1 Samuel 9. He is a mighty man of valor. He is a choice and handsome man. Saul is heads and shoulders taller than every other man in Israel. Wow. Oh, this, this is the earthly king that we need. And so Samuel anoints Saul. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Look at verse 13. Now therefore, Samuel says, here is the king you have chosen. So Samuel goes in, in, in chapter 9 and he finds, uh, he finds Saul, he anoints him, and then there's an occasion for the, the tribes to be back together. There's oppression with Nahash coming, a king of a, of a rival nation. 
And the people cry out again for a king. And Samuel says, okay, here he is, King Saul. But as Lee Corso would say on game day, not so fast. We need to know the rest of the story. I think if we back up a few verses, we can, we can see the rest of the story. If you begin in, in verse um, about 6, Samuel is reminding the people of how God, through their history, has appointed and anointed leaders, judges, and, and key prophets and leaders at key times to rise up and to lead the people of Israel at critical times. And he begins with Moses and Aaron. And then he talks about... Uh, uh, the journey there. And then look at verse 9. But they forgot. They forgot the Lord. And so the Lord handed them. He gave them over to Sisera, who was a, 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 was a, a general in a king's army and had like 900 chariots. And he was coming to, to destroy and to take over and to, to oppress and to, to capture and enslave the children of Israel. And listen to what happens in verse 10. And when this happened, when Cicero came and when he had military victory and he had begun to oppress and to enslave the, the children of Israel, verse 10, they cried out to the Lord. And they said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. We've served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now God deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. There's that, that pattern, that cycle that we see in the, the story of the judges. They cried out. They confessed their sin. God delivered them. The people promised to serve God. But look what happens in verse 12. When they saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, a king needs to reign over us. No, a, a king needs to reign over us. Samuel, if we had a king, he would mobilize the army and the people and we could beat Nahash. We need a king. When Sisera's armies came, the children of Israel repented of their sin and they returned to God and God delivered them. And they served the Lord faithfully. When Nahash came, things had changed so much that they cried out and the children of Israel said, no, no, we need a king now. If we had a king like all the other nations, we wouldn't be in this mess. If we had a king to judge us and to lead us into battle, we would be able to defend ourselves and we'd be able to defeat all these other kings. If we had a king... In other words, it was God's fault that they were in that mess. It was God's fault that Nahash and his armies had come and, and were going to enslave the children of Israel. It was God's fault because they didn't have a king to lead them. It was Samuel's fault because Samuel, as much of a good judge as he was, well, he was no king. And if we just had a king, God, we wouldn't be in this mess. If only we had a king. If only we had 
a president. The right president. The Israelites placed the blame on everyone but themselves. They did not repent. They did not confess their sin. They did not confess their rebellion and their idolatry any longer. Instead, they rationalized their sin. They pointed fingers to blame others, refusing to look at their own hearts and their own lives. Does that sound familiar? It's not our fault. If we just had a king, if we just had a president. In anointing King Saul, God relented to the Israelites' demands. But church, here's the key point, and I think this is where we have something to learn as we prepare for our elections. God did not abandon His children. Instead, God made them a promise. God said, I'm your king, but I understand. You you want this earthly king. You think that will solve your problems. You know what? Let's, Let's see if we can work this out. We'll anoint a king. And look what the Lord says in verse 12. The Lord says, okay, I've given you this king, but I'm going to still love you and you're still going to be my people. And so here's His gracious promise. If you will serve me, and if you will fear me, and if you will listen to me, and if you will obey me, then guess what? You and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? To God's people, the Lord says, if you... If you will follow me, if you will serve me, if you will fear me, if you will obey me, then guess what? Not only you, but your king will follow me as well. But God's promise and God's effort to reconcile with his people is followed by a stern warning in verse 15. The Lord says, if you will not listen, however, if you'll no longer listen to me, if you will continue to rebel against me, then you need to know this. The hand of the Lord will be against you. What an incredibly gracious and loving God that says, you know what, if, if, if the earthly king, if that's where we have to go, then you know what, I'm still going to be your God. And if you'll continue to follow after me and obey me, then your king will too. But if you rebel, and if you go against me, the implication is, well, so will your king. And there'll be greater and greater trouble that comes. So as we begin this period of the rule of kings in Israel, I wonder if there's truth and insight that we can consider today in the area of presidents, in the area of the 2016 presidential election. Now I understand that you don't talk about Religion and politics with people you love, right? 
But, oh well. We still love each other, don't we? There are some of you here that are really, really excited about your presidential candidate. I've talked to some of you. You're, you're excited one way or the other. You, you hope that your candidate wins and you're excited. But there are some that are still really struggling. In fact, I've been, you know, since high school in the 1980s, have been engaged in presidential election, been able to vote from uh, the mid-80s on. And this is the first time in ministry that I've, I've had many of you come to, to the pastor and say, Pastor, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I, I'm really concerned about our nation, and I'm concerned about the election. I'm, I don't know who to vote for. I, don't, I can't vote for either candidate. What am I going to do? The, the angst around this election seems to be as great or greater than anything that I can remember. And I know for many of you it's the same. Our nation continues to polarize in greater and greater ways. So what if we let this biblical story speak into our lives and into our nation today? What if the real issue for this nation is not whether Hillary or Donald is going to be the president? What if we begin to understand that these candidates are already a reflection of who we are as a nation? And that they are not a picture of what we'll become? Israel blamed their problems on the king they didn't have. Americans blame and project the problems on the president that we have or had. If you're a Republican, you blame Obama. If you're a Democrat, you still blame Bush. And for many of us, for many of you, we look to the future president and we go, what's going to happen? We want to blame or project our blame on these candidates on this president but church maybe what we need to hear today is that both of these thoughts are wrong that maybe that's not the president who was is or will be that's to blame for all the problems that we have what if the problems of our nation are focused around the people of our nation a people who do not listen to the Lord. A people who rebel against the commands of the Lord. More specifically, what if the struggles and conflicts of our nation today are rooted in the disarray and the disobedience of God's people, i.e. the church, i.e. us? What if the truth of the situation is that the salt of the church is no longer salty? What if the light of the church is so dim that it no longer penetrates the darkness of our community and of our nation? What if the body of Christ is broken in sin and not in service to others? What if the voice of truth in our church is either muted or it spews forth in harsh judgment of others? What if the truth is that today, as a church, as the people of God, we are given over to indulgence and not to sacrifice. We 
have chosen tolerance over love, license over liberty. Church, I believe that this is the word of the Lord for us as the people of God today. Oh, that our demand that we want a president, or oh, that the demand that, we, that I want my president would give way to the Church of America crying out to the Lord confessing and repenting that we have sinned, asking God to deliver us, and promising that we will serve the Lord each and every day. And if we will begin as the church, as the people of God at this point, then maybe 1 Samuel 12, 14 becomes a word of God to us today. That if you, that if we, that if the people of God will fear, will serve, will listen and obey the Lord, then both you and the president who reigns over you will follow the Lord. These next weeks and months are going to be a difficult, difficult time and transition in our nation. Will God's people humble themselves, confess our sin, obey God's call in our lives to serve Him and to serve our fellow man? And if so, we have the hope and the promise that God through His people will begin to do a miraculous work of transformation in our culture and in the lives of those who lead us, from the president on down. This is my prayer, and this is my hope. And I believe this is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray.